Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you'll, you, you should find some in the little seat backs, or not seat backs, little trays underneath. We will also have the, uh, the text up on the screen behind me in a little bit. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, please take one of those physical ones home. Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance, that it breathes life into a weary soul. We believe that it's the primary means by which God makes himself known to his creation. We also believe that it's effectual and does what God intends for it to do, which means when you start reading it, he uses it for his purposes. So if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one and start reading it I'm confident God will do some stuff with it. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1. So it is now July. Uh, I have been warning you for months uh, that we were coming to uh, a brand new series in July. Uh, we have been uh, in a series all up until, up until uh, a couple weeks ago uh, that we were calling on the same page. Dump all that. Well, don't dump it, but you know what I mean. Don't forget it. Just keep it in the back of your mind somewhere. And now let's move on to Ephesians. Uh, we're going to call it To the Saints, all right? So that's uh, the artwork that we have for it. Uh, if you get a chance to uh, run into Garrett, uh, Garrett's the guy that did our, all of our artwork. I think it looks pretty classy. So uh, we got a big banner out there in the foyer and all that kind of stuff. Um, Ephesians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus, all right? Uh, and so uh, the the letter is called Ephesians because that's how that works. It's to the Ephesian people. You get it, right? All right. Uh, and Ephesians is going to be what we call an expository series. All right. And it's going to be uh, whether you're new to this church or you're just new to me being the preacher here because uh, I've, I've only been here about six months. This will be the first expository series that I've done. So it may be helpful to define our terms a little bit. All right. There are, for our purposes, two basic types of preaching. There's others they're smaller and used less often. Two basic major types of preaching, uh, topical and what's commonly referred to as expository. Topical uh, is where you uh, put the, the, structurally where you put the topic before the text in a sermon, all right? And what I mean by that is you've got something you want to address uh, and you go to the Bible, to the text in order to help us understand it. Uh, expository preaching is the exact opposite of that. You have a text that you're committed to and you pull your topic out of whatever's in front of you. All right. So uh, the series that we just got out of uh, on the same page was a topical series. We had all these words that we wanted to define and we would go to the text in order to help us understand them. All right. And so expository is the exact opposite of that. We've got a text that we're going to look at, in our case Ephesians, and whatever's coming up next is what we're going to talk about. So over the course of this series, that we are going to look at every single word of the book of Ephesians. Think that's valuable? Yeah. Yeah, and people have strong opinions about uh, which type is better, this one or that one. Uh, I happen to think both are really good because both of them have really big pros and some weaknesses, all right? So with, uh, with topical preaching, you've got this thing that you want to look at, and one of, the, one of the pros with it is that you can get a whole Bible understanding of what that one thing, that one thing you want to address, that one topic you want to look into, you can get kind of a, a whole Bible understanding of what that means in the Scriptures. And that's valuable, but let's say you sent your kids 
to a school where all they ever studied was what they chose to study? How'd that end up? Like, if it were me, I would, I would take a couple of social studies classes, and then the rest of the week would be recess, lunch, and PE. Anybody else? Like, that's what I'd spend my time on. All right, and so uh, when, you, when you're doing a topical series, you, you kind of bounce around a lot, and there's a lot of stuff you miss, and you're only kind of focusing on the stuff that you already intended to focus on, and, and that's, that, that's a hole in there. That, that, that's not so great. And so while topical helps us get a whole Bible understanding of a specific thing, it doesn't always help us get the whole picture, right? What about exegetical or expository? Expository, we get the whole letter, and we look at every detail that we can flesh out, and it's great, and it's good. But we can also get trapped in Ephesians for a while, right? What if all we ever studied was Paul's letter to Ephesians? Like, do we need to know what he says to the church in Galatia? Do we need to know what he says to the church in Colossae? What about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount? And so, we need both. And when both are done well, they actually help to serve the other. Right? Good topical preaching helps inform good expository preaching because we get whole Bible understanding of this one little place that we look at. And good expository preaching helps inform good topical preaching because we know the context of something as we approach it in a topical way. Right? So over the course of our last series, uh, we looked at uh, several things in First and Second Corinthians to define our words. Does it help to know why Paul wrote those two letters and what the major thing he was trying to address was and who his audience was and all those kinds of things? Yeah, so a good expository ser- uh, series helps us understand topical. All right? So both styles have incredible strengths, and so what we're going to try to do most of the time is kind of bounce back and forth between the two, all right? Because I'm the new guy here, just kind of laying the groundwork for you. We're going to, most of the time, do a topical series and then do an expository series. And we're not handcuffed to that. We can definitely dump that and do something else. Uh, but by and large, that's about what we're going to handle. All right, so y'all ready to dive deep into the book of Ephesians? Chapter 1. Verse 1. Ready? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Time out. We already have to stop, right? Paul kicks things off by introducing himself and declaring a title for himself, right? He calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. So, what's an apostle? And for those of you without a lot of church background, Who the heck is Paul? (laughs) Right? Paul of Tarsus, Tarsus is where he's from. Paul of Tarsus uh, was a member of an elite religious ruling class of Jewish men called the Pharisees. The Pharisees had some clout, they had some sway in the culture. Paul was young, Paul was bright, and Paul's star was on the rise. All right? He was going to be a big deal. And then Jesus introduced himself to Paul. All right. Paul becomes a Christian. He, uh, God uses him in some incredibly massive ways. Uh, he writes several letters to churches to encourage and to correct several churches uh, like Ephesians. And now we have those as part of our Bible. So God used Paul in some massive ways. Paul was a great defender of doctrine and the faith. Paul also planted churches all over the ancient world, including Ephesus. 
So there's a connection here, right? It's not simply some random letter that a guy with some authority wrote to some church he'd never met before. Paul helped start this church. Paul had connections here. Paul understood the city. Paul knew the people. Paul knew how the gospel applied to every circumstance in Ephesus. So there's a connection here. Paul calls himself an apostle. So what is an apostle? Well, in the generic sense, an apostle is a messenger, right? Literally means one who is sent. And so in the Greek and the Roman world, an apostle was somebody who carried a messenger, like a mailman, I guess, from one person to another person. But it's weightier than that, right? Because an apostle didn't just like carry a letter, they carried a message. There was authority there. They spoke on behalf of the one who sent them. They're kind of like an ambassador, right? An apostle wasn't simply just the guy that was carrying the envelope from point A to point B. No, an apostle was the guy who went and spoke for the one who sent him. And so the early church picked up this terminology to describe somebody who had been specifically sent by God to carry the gospel to other people. Now, I say all that to say this. There are people in our day who would claim that title for themselves, and it's a little bit of a problem. Right? We want to gently push back against that. We're not harping on anybody, but we want to gently push back. All right? uh, there, was a, there were some rules that the early church had attached to who got to bear that title. One was that they had to have personally been witness to the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. Right? They'd had to see him after his resurrection. Another rule that they had was that, that, that Jesus had to specifically instruct that person in what the gospel was and wasn't. And so the apostles were kind of isolated to a l- small little group of people, uh, specifically in the first century. All right? And so when people claim that title for themselves today, we would say it's unhelpful and probably unbiblical, and we would caution them Maybe, maybe don't do that, all right? Again, not harping on anybody, but maybe not helpful. So the early church picked up that terminology. Uh, but Paul, though, Paul gets to claim that title for himself because he met the qualifications, right? Paul had been witness to the resurrected Jesus. How did Paul, those of you who know the story, how did Paul come to faith? Jesus shows up on the Damascus Road, right? Did, did Paul... No, the resurrected Jesus? You bet he did. <laughs> Jesus made himself known to Paul. All right? Did Jesus instruct Paul in what the gospel was? Yeah. Yeah, he did. So Paul gets to call himself an apostle here. He declares his apostolic title because he carried the message of God and was now delivering it to the people. But he also says that he's an apostle by the will of God. Why does he do that? Well, it's because there were a lot of people who didn't like Paul. I don't know if you pay attention to the world that we live in, but uh, especially in the realm of politics, if someone doesn't like your message, what do they normally do? Ad hominem attack, right? Immediately launch into why you shouldn't be listened to. So Paul, all throughout his life and ministry, was wrestling with, I have authority here. And everybody who didn't like Paul and his message was always trying to undercut that authority, right? 
And so Paul here is not simply claiming the title of apostle because, hey, I've got a message for you. No, he's saying, listen, I'm bringing this message with authority. I'm bringing this message not with some self-claimed authority, but by the will of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So right out out of the gate, Paul gets... Before Paul gets into anything else, Paul is establishing how this letter ought to be received, right? He's establishing its intended purpose. He's establishing what ought to be done with it, right? This isn't just some random letter from a guy who who cares just a little bit about maybe the church being successful. Paul is a guy who has a connection with this church who carries the authority of an apostle, a messenger of the Lord, who speaks for the Lord. And this letter ought to be received with obedience, right? Yeah. This letter has an authoritative tone, and even though it's dripping with pastoral love and concern, this isn't, this isn't some dialogue. It's Paul's instructions for the church. So, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, comma, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He says to the saints. So who are the saints? If you're from the south, the saints are a team in New Orleans. (laughs) This is New Hampshire. New Orleans, Louisiana. If you're from where I'm from, Nolan's Louisiana. Did you catch that? Les probably caught it. Nolan's Louisiana. <laughs> New Orleans, Louisiana. So for some, the Saints are a football team. For others, Saints are just really nice people, right? Or if you grew up Catholic, Saints are this venerated, exalted class of extra special Christians who God worked miracles through. And now we kind of pray to them so that they'll take prayers on to God on our behalf. The problem with that is actually the Bible. The Bible doesn't use the word saint in any of those three ways. Not even close. Like Drew Brees may make sainthood one of these days. He brought a Super Bowl win to the New Orleans But the Bible never actually uses that word that way. The Greek word translated as saint is the word hagios. Everybody say hagios. Hagios. H-A-G-I-O-S. Hagios. It literally means the called out ones, the the set apart ones, the holy ones. It's got the same root uh, as a lot of other words in the Bible. H-A-G, hag, right? Uh, The word saint, sanctification. Anytime you see those in the New Testament, holy, holiness, purify, purification. Um, What what are some other words? I had them written down here. Uh, Innocent, sincere. All those words have the same H-A-G root in in the Greek if you're looking at it, right? And so uh, when the Bible uses the word saints, especially Paul's writing, it's not talking about some extra special class of people talking about ordinary class of people talking about normal christians ordinary believers 
Hagios carries the idea of someone who has been declared holy. Declared holy. And in the Bible, someone is declared holy not because they work some miracle, but because they trusted in the finished work of Jesus. Right? Someone is declared holy because they trusted not in their own righteousness, but trusted in the righteousness of Jesus who gave his righteousness to them. When the Bible talks about saints, it's not talking about a special class of people. It's talking about you and me, if you know him. Ordinary believers, the called out ones. Paul here is not speaking to some elite group of super Christians, and we can talk another time about whether or not there should even be such a group. I'll be up front, I don't think there should be. But whether you think it should be or should not, it has no bearing on the fact that Paul here, it would be impossible for him to be writing a letter to a bunch of dead people who have now been voted on and canonized. Right? Who's he writing to? He's writing to people who are still alive at the very least, right? This letter serves no purpose writing it to a bunch of dead people. They're not going to read it. Paul here writes a letter to everyday believers, to people who have been sanctified, holified, if you want to say it that way. Paul has a pastor's heart, and he writes a letter to a bunch of everyday followers of Jesus. Folks who by no merit of their own have been declared holy because they trusted in Jesus' work on their, behalf, on their behalf on the cross. His letter is full of encouragement, and it's full of rebuke. It's full of doctrine. It's full of instruction for practical life and the structure of the church. He teaches the Ephesian people how to live as the hagios, as the holy ones. Think that has something for us? Think we can gain from that? They are dealing with real world issues of sin and culture and community. There are people who want to follow Jesus well as they unite together as a unified body called the church. So that's why we're calling our series to the saints. It's because it's for you and me. A bunch of hagios united in a room together called the church. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. And this is for us. So what about if you're not a follower of Jesus? How do you play into all this? And first of all, the gospel is going to be ever-present throughout the book of Ephesians. Ever-present. We're going to talk about it every week. You're welcome. So if you don't know Jesus yet, come hang out. We've got some stuff we want to talk about. Paul's letters are usually structured in a, in a very typical way. The first half of the letter almost always covers doctrinal issues. He unpacks great truths about who God is and what God has done. And then the back half of the letter almost always uh, plays out the practical implications for those truths that he just unfolded. All right? Ephesians is no different. So it's, there's six chapters in Ephesians, the first three massive doctrinal stuff. This is who God is. This is what God has done. The last three chapters of Ephesians, this is how you live as a follower of Jesus because of those truths. Almost all of Paul's letters play out with the same trajectory, whether it's four chapters in Colossians or six chapters in Ephesians. 
First half, massive truths. Second half, this is what you do with those truths. You're going to hear the gospel over and over again, even when we get to the back half, because you have to remember the gospel to understand all those practical implications well. But also, as we who know Jesus and are united together as Nashua Baptist Church, as we hear Paul's instructions, this apostolic, authoritative tone, as he calls us to do this instead of that and to think this way instead of that way, watch us repent. Watch us tweak things here. Watch us walk in obedience as we try to walk in the way that God would have his church walk. Work through the truth claims of this Jesus that is worthy of submitting everything to. Can you do that? We'll have fun with it. Let's keep going. He said, to the saints, to the saints who are where? Ephesus, Q slides. Waiting on it. There it is. There's the Mediterranean. There's a little pin there. I don't know if you can see it. It's really small. Uh, there. That is Turkey. Ephesus is in Turkey. All right, at the time it was being written, you're going to see Paul refer to it as Asia because that's what the Romans called it. It later got, became called Asia Minor. Now it's just called Turkey. All right? And so uh, hit the next one. There's a little, I just screenshot my maps program on my computer. You're welcome. All right, so if you go to Ephesus today, there are ruins that are still there. All right, so put it in. That's what it looks like. One of these days I want to go to Ephesus. Don't you? You want to go with me? Yeah, it'd be fun. All right. There's a couple of massive things. Wait, who's, who's been? We're going to talk later. All right. There are a couple of massive things in Ephesus. One is this picture that you're seeing here. It's called the Grand Theater. All right. Think Wrigley Field. It holds like 20,000 people. That's a big deal. Ephesus was a port city. Right? Uh, it had uh, a lot of clout on the Mediterranean. Right? During its heyday, it's nothing but ruins now, but during its heyday, uh, back in the time that Paul was writing, about 60 to 62 AD, uh, that's hard to pin down, but about somewhere in there. Uh, at the time that Paul was writing, during Ephesus's heyday, it was considered to be either the fourth or fifth biggest city in the world at the time. Ephesus was metropolitan. You can see why, right? It was a center for culture. It was a center for economics. There was a silversmith guild in Ephesus that made silver statues of the Greek and Roman gods and shipped them all over the Mediterranean. All kinds of cash was rolling through Ephesus. But even though it was a center for economics and a center for culture, what Ephesus is really known for, the big cash cow was the Temple of Artemis. Let's see a couple of pictures. We got a couple of artists' renderings of what the temple might have looked like. It's nothing but ruins today. Let's hit the next one. Yeah. Is there three or two? I don't, I don't remember. Just two? All right. That's good. All right. So the temple of Artemis was dedicated to Artemis. Artemis was the Greek goddess of the hunt. The Ephesian version of Artemis was kind of a hybrid, though. Uh, they had corrupted some things. She had a couple of other things kind of attached to her reputation. Uh, Artemis was, at least the Ephesian version, was known for making things more fruitful, and so she would bless your hunt, she would bless your crops, she would bless your wife if you wanted her to be more fertile. fertile. Anything that you wanted to be more fruitful, you would worship Artemis in certain ways, and Artemis was supposed to have done that, all right? And so, um, 
massive things going on in Ephesus. Some of you are familiar with the Temple of Artemis already because you're familiar with a list called the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. Anybody? So the Colossus of Rhodes, the Pyramids of Giza, the Lighthouse of Alexandria, all those kinds of things. The Temple of Artemis in Ephesus is on that list. And there's a lot of people who think the Temple of Artemis should be at the top of that list. This isn't just some some bucket list thing. If you were a cultured traveler in the first century, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, Asia, was the thing you had to go see. All right, how many of y'all have done the touristy thing before? Every one of us, right? Dads, those of you who have definitely done the touristy thing, you don't just pay for the touristy experience, right? You also pay to lodge near the touristy experience, exorbitantly, right? You also pay to eat near the touristy experience. You also pay to buy a couple of souvenirs that you'll never see again at the touristy experience. Am I wrong? Every touristy experience plays out the same way. We all get it, all right? So, if this is the thing you gotta go visit, between the temple and that silversmith guild I told you about, oh, hear me, folks. Religion is big business in Ephesus. And any pastor can tell you what happens when the gospel starts chipping away at big business. You'll find out real quick where people's idols are. Turn to Acts chapter 19. This is a story that plays out about seven, eight, nine years before Paul's letter is written. Acts chapter 19. You'll see at the superscript above chapter 19, it says, Paul in Ephesus. All right. So Paul has, um, like I told you, Paul was a part of planting the church. There were some believers, kind of, in Ephesus before Paul got there. Uh, the story kind of plays out that they don't really know what it is they're worshiping, and Paul corrects them and plants the church. All right. And so uh, by this part of the story, Paul has been in Ephesus for over two years. He's been preaching in the synagogue and in a couple of other places, uh, and the gospel is going forth powerfully. People all over the place are beginning to worship Jesus, and um, Paul's not just preaching the gospel, though. He's also healing people miraculously. Like, there's a story where he lays his apron on some people, and they get healed. I don't know how that works, but Paul carries authority that I don't, so there you go. Um, And so, uh, not only do people see this, but they sort of want to get in on it, And so uh, there's this story where a couple of guys try to copy what Paul's doing, and it doesn't end well for them. You should go read the story on your own uh, at another time. It's really cool. They basically leave with their tail between their legs uh, because they got beat up by some demons. So that'll that'll be fun. All right. Um, Look at verse 17. So after that happened, 
It says, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That means celebrated or magnified. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's not a small number. So the word of the Lord continues to increase and prevail Skip down to verse 23. About the time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way was a nickname for Christians. Uh, They didn't call themselves Christians. Uh, That was kind of a derogatory thing. They called themselves the way. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. That seems counterintuitive. All right, verse 27. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 28. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, those are uh, city officials, even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. All right, so... Just just stop right there. So a bunch of people come to know Jesus, and the gospel's going so powerfully forward that they're like what are we doing why are we why are we pulling all these other things that we used to do back into following Jesus and so they make a big pile of all their magic books and their idols and whatever else to find their old life and they set that stuff on fire it was a really expensive fire and all the people who made their living making those things go wait a second hello it's okay it's okay you're cool All the people who make their living making all that stuff that was just burned goes, you know, if this keeps up, we're going to be in trouble. So what does it say they do? They start a riot. (laughs) Like, I don't know what a first century riot looks like, but in my head, it's flipping over cars and setting things on fire, right? They start a riot. They drag a couple of, of Christians into that theater thing that we showed you, the grand theater, and they start shouting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis causing some problems here right Paul because he's too dumb to know any better he's just got this personality that he can't be he can't be messed with so he's like I'm gonna go set them all straight not even close Paul wants to go in there and set them all straight and they're like no they're gonna kill you you stay out of here Acts 20 says that Paul waited for the riot to die down And then he left Ephesus. He travels on to Macedonia and to Greece. He spends somewhere between several months and a year there. It's hard to do the math. It it doesn't spell it out specifically. Spends several months in Greece and Macedonia. And then he goes to Jerusalem where he is promptly arrested. 
And then he spends the next four to five years in one form of arrest or another. He's, he's in a jail cell for a while, and he's being transported to Rome for a while, and then he spends two to three years in house arrest in Rome. And the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. Flip to chapter 28 real quick. What is Paul doing while in house arrest in Rome? Look at verse, well, let's just look at 30 and 31. The very end of the book of Acts. He, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. And what are those two words? And without hindrance. The gospel continues going forward. He, he writes several letters. He uh, preaches the gospel. At one place, it seems like the Praetorian Guard is coming to know Jesus. And so, like, there's this weird thing where Paul seems to be more effective in jail than he is outside of jail. And during this imprisonment, he writes four letters that we commonly refer to as the prison epistles. Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and Ephesians. Prisoner Paul has a pastor's heart. And he's going to speak to a church he loves dearly, he knows well, wants to see be successful. He's going to spell out for them in detail what it means to follow Jesus faithfully within the context of community, whether you're persecuted or not. Whether things are going well for you or everyone's against you. The church at Ephesus lived and existed, tried their best to walk faithfully with Jesus in a culture that didn't just misunderstand them, they were antagonistic against them. The gospel going forward powerfully in Ephesus turns Ephesus upside down. People weren't too happy about that. And prisoner Paul writes a letter to people he loves dearly and says, this is what it looks like to walk with Jesus faithfully. Those realities are rooted in the finished work of Jesus and nothing less. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at the reality that, that God is bigger and more powerful and more eternal and actually capable of fulfilling his promises, and puny little Artemis doesn't stand a chance. The finished work of Jesus is a universe-shaking reality. It doesn't matter what the stronghold in Ephesus is. Think Ephesus and Ephesians has anything to offer us? As we live and operate, seek to be successful in a culture that is growing more and more antagonistic? Yeah, I think so. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, our response is to press into a God who's big enough to actually fulfill his promises to us. Right? Who cares about Artemis? 
Who cares what the culture may offer? He's bigger and sweeter still. If you're a follower of Jesus, our role this morning is to press into a God who has all things in his control. Even the cultures and systems that war against us. And who has the ability to turn that culture upside down. To affect dramatic change regardless of the circumstances. We press into a God who is going to teach us what it looks like to follow him faithfully within the context of community. We let Paul's unfolding of the beauty of the gospel begin to influence practical everyday stuff around here. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. It'll be your opportunity to respond however God is calling you to respond. But what about if you're not a follower of Jesus? How do you respond this morning? You become a hagios. One who's declared holy. Sin separates us from God. It is the thing that, that makes us not holy. It's the thing that separates us from God. It is also the very thing that Jesus came to absolve, to take away. It's the very thing he does away with. The Bible teaches that he pays the penalty for my sin and yours on the cross and that all those who put their hope and their trust in him rather than in themselves, he declares righteous. You become a hagios by trusting Jesus. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you start there. You repent of sin. You call on him as Lord. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That'll be an opportunity for you to respond. If you want somebody to talk to, you don't, listen, you don't need me. God's big enough. He's powerful enough. He doesn't need me or any other mediator. Jesus, God himself, is the mediator. You don't need me. But listen, if you want somebody to talk to, I'll be down here. I've got some other people that would be willing to talk if you'd rather talk to somebody with gray hair. I don't have any. <laughs> if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we want to give you an opportunity to meet him. Become a hagios. Let's pray. Father God, you were good to us. Thank you for... Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. God, there's a lot about their culture that looks an awful lot like our culture. There's a lot about their failures that look an awful lot like our failures. But you are a good God, and you equip your people, and you call us to obedience, and so we want to do that well this morning. We want to respond in faithfulness today. God, over the next several months as we begin to open up this letter, would you give us insight that goes deeper than what I'm able to? Oh, I hope this doesn't lean on me. But again, you quip. And your word is functional and does what you intend for it. So would you open our hearts to understand? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? God, for those who don't know you this morning, would they come to know you right now? They repent of sin and call on you as Lord. Would you give them your righteousness and make them holy? So that we may one day be the saints in Nashua. Find us faithful, God. In your name we pray.